Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 6,000 members worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 7th of November 2022 and this is episode 277. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Jonathan Vernon, the digital editor for the WFA, about his research into Lewis during the Great War. Jonathan spoke to me from his home in Lewis, Sussex. Jonathan, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Lewis and the Great War? So my name is Jonathan Vernon. I'm the digital editor of the Western Front Association and have been for over seven years now. I came to Lewis 20 years ago and was introduced to this subject by the inhabitants of the town and a quite remarkable 150-year-old photographic archive, which just happened to have photographs that, amongst others, featured this extraordinary two weeks in September 1914, when 10,000 men landed on the town and the local photographic studio was sent out to take photographs of the men in homes, in stable blocks, in the town hall, in the workhouse and more. So that was my starting place. In terms of my interest in the First World War, then, like so many other people, it came from a grandfather who was born in 1897, died in December 1992. That meant for someone who enlisted in the DLI, was sent to the Machine Gun Corps and transferred to the Royal Flying Corps, he was able to attend the 75th anniversary of the formation of the RAF, the 75th anniversary of the formation of the Machine Gun Corps, and courtesy of Lynn MacDonald, nonetheless, no other, the 75th anniversary of Passchendaele. Because he was so long-lived, I had thirty, nearly 30 years of this old gent telling me his stories. And in a family of cousins and grandchildren, I was the one who'd sit on his knee and listen all day long. So for 20 years plus, I got the detail every moment of his life for his enlistment and his war years. And eventually I moved into um, the media, TV and so on. And I recorded his interviews on digital audio tape in 1991, 92, before he died. Three and a half hours of interviews with him, which I transcribed. He went through, added details, added maps and drawings. Eventually all of this went to the Imperial War Museum Sound Archive, along with his collections of photographs, his um, RAF logbook and so on. So that totally is is where my interest came. Um, his constant desire to talk about machine guns, Vickers machine guns, Clergé rotary engines on the um, uh, on his aeroplane he was trained on. So that that's the fascination. And we had all sorts of hijinks um, with his visits to various places, not least Lynn McDonald to um, his routes through to Hufeld's Forest, Hufeld's Forest um, in Ypres, where he manned a machine gun at Courage Post and lost a lot of his mates. 
But also, I've got a letter from Peter Simpkins, who, after a letter I wrote to the Imperial War Museum, invited my grandfather down to the armory to reacquaint him with a Vickers machine gun. So we had this glorious moment when a 96-year-old, very sprightly and fit, gets down on his haunches behind a Vickers machine gun in the armory at the Imperial War Museum, and he's, he'd set it up to shoot across down the corridor. Amazing. So that, that's, that's how it all began. So we're going to talk about Lewis. Now, where exactly is Lewis in a map of the United Kingdom? Lewis is in East Sussex. We are 11 miles north of New Haven on the uh, English Channel. Um, so key access point to crossing the channel and therefore quite suitable for troops coming in by rail from various different parts of the country. A town of, at the time, around 20,000, essentially agriculture at the time, but some light industry, very, very mixed in terms of the population because you could commute into London, so there'd be people working in bankers, people banks, people who ran businesses, so quite a group of quite wealthy people, but also a population where there were uh, back-to-backs, uh, tenement blocks, and what we'd now call slums. So a very mixed population in quite a small medieval town. And just for, just for reference, what's the population today? Not much bigger. Um, 22, 23,000. I should know, I'm a town councillor here. Um, more on that later, because we the town hall that I use once a month was where about 200 of the troops slept for the two weeks. So we are going to talk about that now. Now, after the declaration of war, Lewis and the surrounding area becomes, quotes, invaded by elements of the 22nd uh, Division. Could you start by telling us about the formation of that unit? So the 22nd Division is drew on Kitchener's recruits from essentially South Wales, North Wales, and the northwest, and those troops were then sent to various places for training, including Patcham, just up the road north of Brighton, further north, Haywards Heath and Upfield, and down to Seaford Camp. And they were being sent in blocks of about 10,000, which I, if I understand it correctly, would be 10 battalions coming from these different places. The theory was that these mostly young men were being sent as far away from home as was possible so that they wouldn't abscond at the weekend or in the evening um, to their loved ones, which is funny given that one or two people we might talk about later thought they were going to be trained in Wales and ended up back home on the south coast. So that's the 22nd Division. As part of my dissertation, I was told you can't research 10,000 men and tell a decent story in a master's dissertation. So I was encouraged to pick two or three battalions and I chose the Cardiff Pals, who are South Wales, white collar, clerical workers, and the Ninth East Lanx, which are um, cotton mill, dock workers, miners um, from Burnley, Preston, that, that part of the world. So I, I think you've done you've done question five by covering who was in the divisions in divisions ranks. I maybe should I ask you about um, what motivated them to enlist? Of course, yeah. So what actually in motivated these individuals to enlist um, prior to their uh, 
arrival in Lewis? I think what motivated them to enlist was meant was truly the core of the dissertation, which required me to go over all the old ground covered by um, Catriona Pennell, um, Peter Simpkins, and many others to establish what exactly was motivating young men and not so young men to enlist. And in the course of doing a massive literature review and getting to understand the men from the Cardiff area and from East Lanx, it was extraordinary just the variety of reasons why clearly a person enlisted or we could suppose a person enlisted. And it varied right across the spectrum from genuine, quite jingoistic, nationalistic patriotism to the other scale, complete desperation of men who had little work, had then had no work and would not be given any poor relief because basically they were told, you've got to enlist. So there were men in East Lancashire who worked on the docks and in the mills were pretty much told we're not going to, even though we should provide you with poor relief because you have no work, they wouldn't. They said you've got to enlist. So there's compulsion at one end of the scale and a sort of jingoistic, um, we want to do our best for king and country at the other. And everything else in between, which all the previous writers have, have concluded, drunken youthful enthusiasm, um, enlisting on mass as a group of young men, uh, men who might have had a commission who wanted to enlist to get into the um, army and see the war before it ended too soon, the whole gamut. And I think I ventured a bit too close towards sociology and social history by thinking in terms of a population pyramid, which thinks of populations as having outliers at either end. But I thought it was a very good way of describing what happens that, that in a population, a behaviour of people can be expressed as outliers with two extremes at both ends. So it has the whole gamut of reasons why people might, might end up enlisting. And what was beautiful with the Cardiff Pals and the 9th East Lancashire, there was quite a contrast between where they were coming from and why they might enlist and the kind of people they were. So why did the division get sent to Lewis? And what did it do when it got there? So the division was being sent, the divisions that were being allocated to various camps across Britain, I think there were 20 or 30 camps, someone might correct me on, on, the, on the actual number. And there were several along the South Coast, including Patcham, north of Brighton, Buckfield, Haywards Heath. And there's a camp going to be built at Seaford on the coast. And... Unfortunately, the camp wasn't ready. So tents had been sent down to put onto the ground for the men to stay in, and they hadn't been built. So the call came out with three or four days notice, can you take 10,000 men and billet them on the town for a week or two? And various towns put their hands up and said, yeah, we'll have men. Lewis got the 10,000 from the 22nd Division and literally had two or three days notice to go around houses, knocking on doors, saying, will you take a couple of soldiers, six soldiers, eight soldiers, whatever? How many can we stick in the town hall, in the old workhouse, in in stable blocks, because there was a a race course up the road? And so it went on, doubling the size of the population overnight and keeping 10,000 men occupied for two weeks. 
became quite an undertaking. And that is part of the story that I, that I told in my dissertation. So let's get on to that detail. How did the local population find the invasion and how did the troops find being deployed or so should we say uh, hosted by the residents of Lewis? The easiest way I found to describe it to people is it's not different to having a music festival land on your doorstep, which we had in Lewis a few years ago when Mumford and Sons chose our town for their summer concert. And I think the entire population went to the concert and double the number of people came to, to, to enjoy it. And suddenly the town was heathing with people. Now, that concert was for 24 hours. The population of Lewis doubled in September 1914 for two weeks. They had to be accommodated somehow. And the town hall through the mayor's office got the uh, local police involved. And they literally went round knocking on people's doors saying, how many men can you take? And in a quite medieval way, they get a piece of chalk out and put a number on that door. They became quite bullish about it because some people were becoming fussy, saying, we can only take three. And the sergeant would say, you're having six. Or someone would say, I only want officers. And said, well, you're taking whatever men we send you. The, belief, the understanding being that you got more money because you got paid. You got more money for an officer than you did for a, for a private soldier, regular soldier, which was the case. You got you know, a few more pennies uh, for their food and their accommodation. And so it went on. And then the men started to arrive in the evening and, and, and overnight. And what would happen is someone would knock on the door and, he's, and they'd say, you said you take three, you're getting eight. You said you wanted officers. Well, you've got 10. Put them in the cellar. There's nowhere else for them to go. And so it went on right around the town. And the difference between where you'd end up could not be more extreme. So the town hall was strewn, strewn in straw and men were put into the council chamber, into the local courts, on the floor in great big numbers. Others, um, people opened up their stables, opened up their stable blocks, put in some fresh straw and chucked men into, into the stables. Others were not treated the men as a source of income and they were basically a bed and breakfast service and they wanted to milk them for what the money they were getting and, and gave them quite short change in terms of the quality of the experience they had. And then of course the wealthiest families in Lewis, seven bedroom Edwardian homes, these young lads, supposedly still wearing clogs who'd come down from the mills in Lancashire, were being put into a room of their own with the sheets changed every day and a full, you know, the equivalent of the full English breakfast in the morning, entertainments from the surrounding families in the evening. So extraordinary difference in experience. And then, of course, they were got up at 5.30 in the morning and taken off on route marches and exhausted as best they could be. And, of course, those pubs, there's 60 pubs in Lewis. There's a pub on every fifth house was a pub in Lewis. They um, had to close early for good reason. Otherwise, there could have been real trouble in the town. So quite an adventure for the town for two weeks. And photographed, this was a remarkable thing. Edward Reed's photographers, set up in the 1850s, still running today, has an archive of 150,000 glass plates and several hundred photographs from that two-week period. So I had the joy of going into those photographs and seeing the men and even almost trying to identify 
some of the men I'd been researching and seeing if I could find a picture of them. And I actually did. I was able to find some pictures of, of, of the people who, who'd come here. And were there any tensions between soldiers and local civilians? There's there surprisingly little tensions, um, but there was, there was a little bit of misbehaviour. And I think keeping them out of the pubs, keeping the pubs, they, you know, get, they get an hour at the end of the day if they were lucky. The pubs were closed on Wednesdays, which was uh, payday. So they didn't quite get that chance. But what the town did realise is they had to put on masses of entertainments, musicals, cinema, football games, um, all sorts of events going on in back gardens to keep the men occupied until they were put to bed and sent to sleep. All that I've come up through the newspapers and, and some of the accounts is a little bit of petty theft um, and the men got a sharp slap on the wrist and told, you know, you're not an upright young man if you think you're going to join the army and nick someone's watch and a few shillings. And of course, there's that story of all the young men who were put into the Lewis Old Grammar School and the lady next door, her young maid, would of course go and get pregnant. <laughs> and she was sent off home for a period and came back, leaving a child in Wales return to a job but that's the only sort of misbehavior i've found i think more sad is is someone who got very drunk jumped off the bridge into a tidal river and drowned and another man committed suicide so all these stories you uncover which maybe is what you'd expect out of a population of a new you know population of 10,000 mostly young men over a two week period and how long did the 22nd Division stay in Lewis? So some of them stayed for two weeks. Some of them only managed a few days or a week because it all fell apart quite quickly. I think the town realised they just couldn't cope. The best will in the world, they couldn't cope. And I know for a fact a lot of the Cardiff pals who were these young white-collar middle-class clerical workers from the Cardiff docks, they weren't put in the nice homes at the top of the hill. They were put into the old workhouse by chance. I don't know who made that decision. The old workhouse had been shut for three years. They tried to fix the plumbing and chuck the, these lovely young men into the workhouse. And it all the plumbing went wrong. I mean, there were three toilets for 400 people and there was nowhere to put them. A handful ended up in lovely big homes who hadn't opened their doors until now. They took a few men, um, probably picked the ones they liked the look of. The rest were marched off to Eastbourne. So after a few days or a week, certainly a lot of the Cardiff pals disappeared to Eastbourne. Others had a, had a different experience entirely. Um, the stable blocks I mentioned already, it sounds like a bit of a rough ride to be in the stable blocks, but they were owned by a very wealthy man who had a lot of racehorses. Every day these men got up, they were given a full, you know, slap, you know, great big breakfast. Uh, a, a pouch of tobacco, a few coins and, and some food to send them on their way. So they were as happy as Larry. Um, and then there were all sorts of events that were put on. I think the biggest event, the most successful event, was a football match between um, Wales and Lancashire. So it was sort of it's plugged as an international, Wales versus England. And this match was put on and they just really, really enjoyed it. So I think those sort of events... Um, and a lot of other activities they put on. I think many people went away with, with the feeling it was, a, it was a great experience and they missed it. And when they went down to Seaford Camp, I know that there were a number of men who kept up a correspondence with the people who'd put them up over a few days. 
um, and, and correspondences that you know went went on for many years. And of course, there's one little love story in there about a young man from Lancaster who meets a young girl, and uh, he goes off to Salonica, survives the war, and after four and a half years away, comes straight back to Lewis, marries the girl, and finally goes home and says, "I'm home. I'm also married." So there's there's some lovely stories in there. One thing that I, sh- I should have asked you earlier was about accents. Did people have difficulty communicating because they were from different parts of the United Kingdom? I certainly found that in my own research, looking at Scotland, Durham and places like that. I, I, I imagine so. And I, I obviously read the press accounts with a certain pinch of salt, the way they're expressed, because the press seems to think the, the Lancashire lads came down wearing clogs and talking an accent that no one could understand. And of course, all the men from Wales love to burst into song at the slightest opportunity. So I think there's a bit of a bit of some stereotypes there, which probably weren't quite right. There's nothing that I've read that indicated there was a problem um, with with communication um, amongst them. My penultimate question is, did the division or its soldiers retain any connection with Lewis after the war? You've you've indicated there was a a bit of love, but was there anything, I suppose, more formal? I don't think there was anything more formal. Um, at all, from what I can tell. The, the fortunate thing, in a way, is if I want to follow the story of the 2,000 men who I looked at in close detail, is most of them did come back because they went to Salonica. They didn't go to the Western Front. So my men, if I followed the story through, they died of sunstroke, malaria, and eventually, you know, Spanish flu, and once or twice when they went over the top towards the end of the war. But I think 83% of them came back, which is far, far better record than, than other divisions. And as I said, the only story, oh, there's, there's that one story of the man who, who married someone in the local family. And there's, there's one other family, um, the, the 22-year-old um, woman, Mary Hotblack, kept... Uh, all the letters she wrote to her brothers and her uh, her boyfriend, they tell a, a quite close record of the relationship between the town and the men who were sent sent off and, and survived or didn't in different ways, so, which, which makes an interesting story. But I'm not aware of any um, relationship being maintained with the town after that period. In fact, the town didn't have men billeted on it in those in large numbers ever again. Um, I think they'd realised after that two-week period that they'd pushed, pushed, they'd been pushed to the limits. And there's one story, by way of example, where the food they were providing to the men, the meat that was being provided, was stolen. So imagine what happens when you're trying to feed ten thousand men, and some miscreant butcher who'd been brought in to create, um, produce the meals, stole all the meat, took it down to Eastbourne, and tried to flog it. Um, so they would have had periods when the men were, were going hungry. And finally, Jonathan, where can people learn more about your work and this story? So the, my master's dissertation is published on the Western Front Association website. And pretty much as it was presented as my MA dissertation, under the title, An Enthusiastic Response to War, British Social Responses to the Outbreak of the First World War, which is essentially what it was about. That includes, of course, the friendly invasion of Lewis. And also my grandfather's story is written up and presented on the Western Front Association website. Jonathan, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome.
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time...